Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. Be found in the Bibles provided beginning on page 1008. We'll be in verses 1 through 17 today. Our passage today may be a familiar one to us. Uh, This whole section of Scripture um, of Hebrews is very appreciated among Christians. We looked last week at the kind of the heroes of the faith, the hall of faith, and then we move on into this practical section beginning in verse 12. In chapter 12, it's very motivating. If we were to have John Williams leading a symphony back here, we could hear the, the crescendo beginning, you know, and the, the trumpets blaring and calling us to action and victory. We've just been given these fascinating examples in the last chapter to encourage us in the Christian walk. We could take each one of these people mentioned and we could do a, an entire sermon series on each one of them. We could spend weeks studying these, these um, people we encounter in chapter 11. The struggles and the stories that come to mind just at the mention of their name is enough to cause us to stand and wonder at the Lord's work in them. And so it's fitting that the author begins chapter 12 re- referring to them as a great cloud of witnesses. They're witnesses to the worth of the reward that we've been called to. They're like portrait after portrait as we walk down the hall along the, uh, posted along the walls to encourage us in faith and perseverance. And so the way that chapter 11 ends in verses 39 and 40, we benefit from their example as if to say, okay, they persevered and they endured and they are waiting on their reward and they won't get it until you get yours. And so now it's your time. Now you're on stage. Now it's your time to endure in faith the way that they endured in faith. And so in this chapter, the author takes the potential energy of encouragement that we saw last week in chapter, the last couple of weeks in chapter 11 and converts it to the kinetic energy calling us to active endurance in chapter 12. Our thesis statement for for, um, our sermon today is pretty simple. We We are called to endure discipline together. We are called to endure discipline together. And that's that's our sermon points. We're called to endure, verses 1 through 4. We're called to endure discipline, verses 5 through 13. And we're called to endure discipline together, verses 14 through 17. So let's begin reading in verses 1 through 4. This is God's word. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. 
in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. This is God's word. So we are called to endure. We endure by running the race that is set before us. We run the race that is set before us. What's the purpose? What's the, what's the purpose of the race? What's the, what's the motivation? What's the goal of running the race? If you've ever talked to any, someone training, first of all, if you're ever talking to someone who's training for a marathon, it won't take very long for that subject to come up. Um, they're going to weasel that into the conversation somehow. We not only put it on the back of the car, but got got to post it in every conversation whenever it's possible. But the goal of running your first marathon is very simple. One, you want to finish. You want to finish. You want to train in such a way so that you don't quit so that you can't quit. You wanna make sure that you have enough endurance to finish the race. But they also have a second goal. They know how long that race course is open. Maybe it's five hours, maybe it's six hours, maybe it's seven hours. By the way, anybody can run for two and a half hours. It takes a real athlete to run for five or six or seven hours. They want to run to finish the race within the allotted time so that they may get the award. They may get the reward. They may get that finisher's medal. They want the proof that they did it. They want the, what, they want the reward that is promised to all finishers. And so that first marathon runner is running to get, running to finish, but they want the reward. The New Testament uses running metaphors all the time. Running is a great metaphor for life. And in verse 1, the author helps us paint a picture, help paint, paints a picture for us. If you want to run for, with endurance, there are two things that you must do. One, you must lay aside every weight. If you're running a marathon, everything you're carrying on your body has to have a purpose. If it doesn't have a purpose to get you to the finish line, take it out. Don't use it. Strip it off. We're called to examine our lives in the same way that the runner is, can, is, is casting aside every weight to run the race. Is this hobby or is this possession or is this activity enabling me to run with endurance the Christian race? Now, admittedly, we can drive ourselves nuts with this question. It's a question and thought that should be frequent in our devotional times. It should be frequent in our conversations with one another. It should be frequent in our prayers. What is it, are these things that, I, that occupy my time? Are these helping me run the race or are they, uh, should we lay them aside? We should think about this before we buy a house in another part of town. Or we should, we should think about this if we take a job where there's not a good church. Or we should think about this if we buy a travel trailer that will present opportunity for us to be away from Christian fellowship for long stretches of time. Or date a person that may not be where we are spiritually. Or join a sports travel team or take up a hobby that takes you away on weekends. We should frequently be examining our lives in view of how it enables us to run the race of faith. Think of the parable of the soils, right? Mark 4 the seed sown among the thorns. 
They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the word, world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. So to run the race with perseverance, we lay aside every weight, but we also are called to lay aside the sin that clings so closely in verse one. If we were to push this metaphor, sin could be that, that clothing that causes blisters or injury that keeps you from finishing the race. Or it could be bad nourishment that ill-equips you for the race and you get sick or you burn out. Or it could be a wandering mind that just causes you to devalue the race and pick up something else instead and just quit altogether. Sin is always present for us. But we're called to root it, root it out of our lives. Like in a marathon, there's never an easy or perfect race. There are always temptations to bow out. You're going to have difficulties and you're going to want to quit. You're going to have to deal with that stinking thinking in your head that is constantly saying to give up or to take the easy path. But this call to endure is so much more than just a motivational speech. The author calls our attention to Jesus. And he says, you endure by looking to Jesus. And we see in verses two through four that Jesus is an example of our faith. He is the source of our faith and he is the perfecter of our faith. Let's take a look at these one at a time. Jesus is the example par excellence of our faith, for our faith. The author says that Jesus didn't endure a race. He endured the cross. How did he endure it? He endured the cross by looking forward to the joy that was set before him. He can endure the scorn and the shame. He rejected any regard for his reputation. He stood against those who mischaracterized his actions as disgraceful. He was able to do all this by looking to the joy set before him. Just as we read last week how Moses rejected the fleeting pleasures of sin for the sake of the reward, so also Jesus endured the shame and the disgrace of the cross for the reward that was set before him. You think that you face opposition? Think of the hostility that Jesus faced. So don't grow weary or faint-hearted. Your struggle against sin, as he says in verse 4, has not yet resulted in you shedding your blood. It hasn't resulted in your martyrdom. You haven't denied yourself nor faced opposition to the point of death. So keep going. Don't shrink back. But as good as this is, Jesus, as as good as Jesus is as an example, this isn't very helpful to us. I've always thought that, hey, Be encouraged. There's a people that got it a whole lot worse than you do is a really weak motivating factor. It doesn't help. It doesn't encourage me to keep going. It just makes me glad I'm not someone else. And what happens if we do get to the point where we are required to be martyred? According to verse four, does that mean that all bets are off? Oh, well, if you shed blood, then it's okay. We don't have to follow through on that one. No, I don't believe so. I think it's intended to move us from seeing Jesus as an example to as the source and as the perfecter of our faith. 
So we saw Jesus as an example of our faith. We see Jesus as the source of our faith as well. And when I say source, source of our faith, we see that word founder there in verse 2. I mean that he is the source of our faith and that he has gifted us faith. It is by grace you've been saved through faith and it's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God lest no one should boast. Furthermore, he is the, he is the source of faith and that he is the foundation of our faith. As one commentator said, Jesus is the one on who our faith is founded. He is both the cornerstone and the capstone. He is the unshakable ground on which our hope and salvation rests. Without him, our faith is futile and we have no basis for belief. If Jesus is not who he says he is, then our faith is in vain. It's not an overstatement to say that the entire Christian faith rests on the reliability of Christ's person and work. So Jesus is the founder of our faith. He's the source of our faith. But he's so much more than an object to be believed in. He provides the fuel and the power of faith. He's the one that brings our faith home. He's the one that brings it to completion, which makes Jesus the perfecter of our faith as well. I think we see an allusion to this in that comment there in verse 4. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. The unspoken part of that verse is dot, 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 but there is one who has. I think verse 4 serves as a hinge to lead us to the next section in talking about treating us and loving us as sons. We can only enjoy the privilege that God <laughs> this privilege of being a son because God has treated his son as we deserve to be treated. Jesus resisted sin to the point of death. Jesus resisted sin to the point of shedding his blood, even death on a cross. And his blood was punishment for sin, sin that he had, not, he had, never, he had never committed. But nevertheless, he paid the penalty for those who are entrusting, who are entrusting themselves to Christ by faith. We've already seen in our study of Hebrews that through this shedding of blood, Jesus has entered the holy place through his offering of blood. We is, he, is, he has entered in that holy place and he is interceding on our behalf. He's such, so much more than a firm foundation. He is our great high priest, ministering on our behalf. He is strengthening us. He's helping us. He's causing us to stand upheld by his righteous, omnipotent hand. Think of Jesus in, his most, in one of his most trying and vulnerable moments, the night of his arrest. Luke 22, Jesus looks to Peter and he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you. That he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. In Jesus' weakest moment, he is interceding on behalf of those who will betray him momentarily. And if, and if he is perfecting Peter's faith in that instance, how much more is he doing so now as he intercedes for us to have been washed and cleansed by his blood in the heavenly realms? He is also the perfecter of our faith in that he will bring about our perfection when he returns. As Pastor Larry just read and or just prayed in, in, uh, 
in 1 John 3, 2, you know, what we will be is not yet, uh, has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So Jesus is bringing our perfection to us when he returns. He is in this way, the perfecter of our faith. And so the author calls us to endure and shows us how to endure and shows us how Jesus equips us to endure. But do we endure just to get to the end? Do we endure just to finish the race? Is that it? What's the purpose of enduring weakness, insult, hardship, difficulty, persecution? Does God just allow a bunch of stuff to be thrown at us to toughen us up? There's a purpose to everything in life, as Pastor Gio was praying earlier. And in verses 5 through 13, the author gives us the eyes of faith to show us how we should look upon our difficulties of life. You are called to endure discipline in verses 5 through 13. Let's look. Let's read. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father is not disciplined? Uh, does not discipline. If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lamed may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. You are called to endure discipline. He supports this in verses, this premise in verses five through six by appealing to Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. He introduces this as an exhortation, as an encouragement. Don't blow off your hardships. Don't just seek to get rid of them. Don't be weary in them because they are disciplined for you. They are beneficial. In a way, in trials, we are encouraged not to focus on what is going to become of us, but rather to think on what I am becoming through the discipline. In the rest of this section, in verses 7 through 13, the author instructs us in discipline, which is, for, which is a further exhortation to endure discipline. In verses 7 through 8, we see discipline proves that you are a child of God. This is one way we should be encouraged to endure discipline because it proves that we're a child of God. This makes sense. 
I don't concern myself with what the kid down the street's doing. I don't discipline him. Why? It's not my kid. I don't have an obligation to him. So that struggle you're in, it's discipline. God, your father, is disciplining you. God's discipline is rooted, uh, uh, God's discipline of us is rooted in God's love for us. And it's not primarily a case uh, the way a dad sometimes speaks. I'm, I'm spanking you because I love you. That's not what this is talking about. Our discipline shouldn't be considered God's punishment. Rather, it is a fatherly discipline. Tom Schreiner says discipline shouldn't be considered as punitive, but rather as corrective and educative and formative. Not all discipline is due to sin. Some of it is to wean us away from sin. It's planned to cause us to grow in righteousness. So don't be discouraged in discipline. It's not because the Lord is angry with you, just the opposite. He's disciplining you because he loves you. Discipline is a sign of God's favor and God's acceptance. But unbelievers go through hard times too. So how do we know that God isn't treating us as an unbeliever? Because you're going against the grain. You're enduring it. You aren't turning to the right or the left. You aren't kicking against the goads. You're enduring it and looking to Jesus as your faithful example and your strength. If you were an unbeliever, you would be trying to extricate yourself from the situation immediately at all costs and not seek any comfort at all from the Lord. You would ask your, your friends, like, is there a way you can get me out of this? Not, is there a way you can pray for me in this and encourage me? You would fall prey to the slightest discomfort and change directions as quickly as possible. But that's not you. Be encouraged. God is disciplining you as his child. Which leads to the second teaching point about discipline in this section. We should respect and honor God for the discipline he gives us in verse 9. We understand that our earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time and we respected them, even though earthly fathers are fallible sinners who often make mistakes, which makes it more difficult for you to submit to sinful fathers, right? But how much more should we respect and submit to our heavenly father and live? He knows our end from our beginning. He knows our reasoning and our rationale. He knows his purposes and who controls all things. He is fully and completely in control so that we can endure discipline joyfully and confidently because we trust our Holy Father. And we know that there is no such thing as meaningless discipline. None. He will not allow uh, our discipline to go one second longer than his good purposes require for us. So we can be encouraged, we can submit, and we can respect God in the midst of our discipline. And the third teaching point in this section on discipline is found in verses 10 and 11, that discipline leads to holiness. There is a purpose to the discipline. Holiness. 
God disciplines us so that we may share in his holiness. That may be a question we have. Once we become a Christian, why aren't we just taken up into heaven? Okay, you got your ticket, go on up. Why do we have to wait so long? Why is life so hard? Why is it arduous? Because through these lives of discipline, we have the opportunity to perform the duty for which we were created. We have a chance to display God's holiness in creation. We get to show what God is like to a watching world. God leaves us on this earth because we have the privilege to live for his glory. And he disciplines in us so that we may better live for his glory. In some ways, we get to reenact the garden. For we stand every day against a world that challenges us and goes, did God really say that? So if that's what God is after, why doesn't he just perfect us now? Why didn't he just make us perfect and then okay, we can live here, fine. Because we still live in a world of sin and there was only one who was truly perfect. God in his wisdom decided that we best glorify God in the struggle. We glorify God by standing against the devil's schemes. We glorify God in the fight of faith. Again, look to Jesus. He wasn't an amatron. He wasn't a cyborg just going through the motions who just did right and couldn't do anything else. Consider 1 Peter 2. For to this you have been called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. It was a struggle for him. It was hard. He was perfect and it was hard. But he endured because he entrusted himself to the Lord. He glorified the Lord and the worth of the reward in the way that he endured. And we are called to look to Jesus in the exact same way as a, an example for us to look to the reward and to entrust ourselves to our good father who disciplines us and endure for his glory. There were real choices to be made for Jesus. He wasn't playing a part. He was disciplined. I had lunch a couple of weeks ago with a guy who is not part of this church. Um, He's a hard-charging guy who is expressing uh, some desire to do something big for God. And um, I told him, I said, you know, I, I exhorted him with this exact point. I'm like, look, there's no bigger role in the kingdom of God than living a holy life. There's no bigger role in the kingdom of God than entrusting yourself to the Lord and being shaped and molded by discipline and humbly living to honor the Lord. There is no greater calling. Do you want to know the purpose for your life, the purpose for which God created you? God has a unique role for you. Here it is, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. For this is the will of God for you. 
Your sanctification. Do you abstain from sexual immorality? Did each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor? Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger, is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us to impurity, but holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. God has called you to holiness. He has not called you to impurity. He has not opened a way for you for impurity. Holiness is the watermark for the believer. Holiness has a reward. We see that in verses 12 through 13. Holiness has a reward. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. You are being healed. You are being strengthened. You are being purified. You are being perfected for the work that he has called you to. And so in light of this teaching on discipline, the author exhorts us again with these verses in 12 through 13 that borrow or allude to our Old Testament reading from um, Isaiah 35. The author's contemporary audience was discouraged in their Christian walk. They were discouraged because of opposition. They were discouraged because they believed God was displeased with them because things were hard. They were discouraged because there seemed to be no point to any of this. And so the connection the author is making from, with Isaiah 35 is that this is not a new phenomenon for you. This is not a new phenomenon for the people of God. In fact, he makes this point throughout the book of Hebrews. God's purposes were being fulfilled for God's people in Egypt for 400 years. God's purposes were being fulfilled in the wilderness generation for 40 years. And now in Isaiah 35, God's purposes are being fulfilled in the exile. In every one of those experiences, God gave them a reward to look forward to. You'll be slaves in a foreign land for 400 years, but you will return to this land. And then the promise, and then the wilderness generation, they were actually encouraged and were given, and were even enabled to, to go in and look at the land to see that it was truly there, to see that it was what God had promised. He's still encouraging them with that reward. And then in the exile, as we read, God promised them that though they were in the midst of difficult suffering, they would return. God would bring them back to Zion. And now he says the same thing to us in Hebrews. Look to the reward. I'm promising you a reward. You will be with me in heaven. You will be perfected. So lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Don't just endure discipline, but praise God in discipline. I like the counterintuitive nature of things in verse 13. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint. It's like, all right, so make straight paths for your feet, even though you can't walk. Uh, make straight paths for your feet and go walk. It doesn't make any sense. 
What's the cure for spiritual lameness? Follow Christ. Make straight paths for your feet. Remove obstructions and follow Christ. Lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely. It's interesting that the cure for spiritual lameness is to walk after Jesus. But we think, well, first I must be healed and then I'll walk, right? That's not the way Jesus did it in the Gospels. He did it by commanding them to get up and walk. So if you're discouraged and weak, if you're spiritually lame due to circumstances, get up, pursue God and follow him. Be encouraged because God rules over all of it. This trial, this discipline that you're in, it's for your good. Your deliverance is near. This is what you were called for. So get up and follow Jesus today. Just, just begin, just pursue him. Just endure, just understand that the circumstances you're in are difficult. And then just take a step and just walk. Trust him. We are called to endure. Secondly, we saw that we're called to endure discipline. Thirdly, lastly, our last point is that we're called to endure discipline together in verses 14 through 17. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness about which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, <clears throat> that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no ch chance to repent, though he sought it with tears." We are called to endure discipline together. In verse 14, we're, we're, called, we're commanded to strive for two things. We're to strive for peace with everyone. We think about this in the Lord's Supper every week. Peace of God translates into peace with others. Not always. It doesn't say be peaceful with others. It says strive for peace with others. Romans 12, 18 says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So part of this enduring is living peaceably with other, to get, uh, strive for peace with one another. And secondly, he says that we're strive to, uh, we're commanded to strive for holiness. For without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Holiness isn't optional for Christians. It's not reserved for super Christians. Striving for holiness and enduring discipline are synonymous. And we've seen it up in verse 9. If we are subject to God, uh, the, um, um, yeah, if we're subject to the Father of Spirits, we'll live. And here we see that striving for holiness, without striving for holiness, no one will see God. This is essential in the Christian life. Holiness doesn't mean achieving sinlessness, but rather seeking and pursuing the Lord and enduring discipline because we know as we endure discipline, he makes us, he perfects us in holiness. You can't fall away in apostasy if you're seeking and pursuing the Lord. You can't fall away if you're enduring discipline. You stand in the middle of it. 
We also see further evidence of enduring discipline together there in verse 15. We watch over one another so that we may obtain the grace of God. Some may object to that. So why do we have to work to stay in grace? You're preaching the law here. Why are we having to work to stay in grace? Because we've seen that God's grace is fulfilled or is revealed in discipline. And so if we object to that, we fail to obtain it. If we, we fail to obtain it if we object to it or if we avoid it or reject it. And so we, we stay in grace. We, we, uh, we, we are given grace by God as we endure in this. And grace is the endurance to stand under it. See that no one, see that um, we encourage and exhort one another to endure. And we do this not only out of love for our brothers and sisters, but we also encourage our brothers and sisters to, um, to endure because not enduring or falling away, if they fail to obtain the grace of God, it has a disastrous effect on the body as we see there in verse 15. Look at it. See to it that no one, singular, fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness, also singular, springs up and causes trouble, and by it, singular, many, plural, become defiled. This is alluding to Deuteronomy 29, 18, and 19, which I think is worth um, take considering for a second. If you want to flip over there, that's okay. Deuteronomy 29, 18 and 19. This is what it says. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. That one in the congregation who's just going, yeah, I don't have to do any of this. I'm going to be safe. Jesus died for me. It's all cool. I don't have to. Um, I, it's okay. I'll be forgiven for walking in the stubbornness of my heart. The Lord says in Deuteronomy that that's going to lead both, both faithful people and unfaithful people who are struggling away. There is no safety for the person walking in the stubbornness of heart, and he can drag others down with him. We must guard one another in this exercise. The author ends this passage this morning with the cautionary account of Esau in verses 16 and 17. Why should we pay attention to Esau? Why do we care about Esau? Because he was nowhere to be found in Hebrews 11. He should have been in Hebrews 11. He was the one that, that should have gotten the blessing. He should have gotten the promise. But instead, he sold his birthright and his blessing for a single bowl of lentil stew. In Genesis 25, Esau said, let me eat some of your stew for I am exhausted. And Jacob said to Esau, sell me your birthright now. And Esau, reject, Esau replied, I'm about to die of hunger. What use is this birthright to me anyway? And Jacob says, swear to me now. And so he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. 
And he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau sold his birthright. Esau despised the long-term promises and he considered them of no value whatsoever in the midst of a simple, simple trial that would last for a, I mean, you're talking about really momentary? One meal, one meal. Two chapters later, Jacob swindles Esau out of his birthright, the one that he had already given away. And Esau expresses regret in the, in the consequences and throws a tantrum, but takes absolutely no responsibility at all for his actions. Instead, he plots to kill his brother. Now, he was saddened by the results, but he never sought repentance. He never sought it. He begged and begged for his father to restore to him the blessing. And he sought it with tears, but repentance was far from him. It never occurred to him to repent. He wanted to enjoy the, the blessing, but he had no regard at all for the discipline. It's a bit of an odd passage for us. It's an, we've got incredible encouragement on the front end, and we've got really confusing discouragement and warning on the back end. Craig Coster says, this passage is designed to awaken people to danger, not to make them give up hope, and not to make them give up hope. Warning is the counterpart to promise. <clears throat> Both pertain to the future. Warnings disturb people while promises encourage them, but together they serve the same end which is encouraging people to persevere in faith. Be encouraged. If you're hearing this message, you are not beyond repentance. The opportunity to repent is offered to you freely this morning. Repent of your discouragement, of your desire to, to no longer endure, to just give up and go, you know what, I'm just going to sit in my recliner and just drink beer and just forget about it, the whole thing, and just renounce the whole ball of wax you are not beyond hope but it may not always be so repentance may not always be available to you there may come a day that you may be like Esau and repentance just makes zero sense <clears throat> this is all part of the discipline of the Lord we are called to endure and God has provided us a savior a great high priest who strengthens us and enables us to endure. We're called to endure discipline. This is how we reflect the character of God and grow in holiness. And without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Discipline will not disappoint, nor will it ever fail to pay off. It will yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And we're called to endure discipline together so that no one may fail to obtain the grace of God. Like chapter 11 ends, apart from those heroes of faith, apart from us, those heroes of faith will never be made perfect. They won't receive their reward. As we sit in this room today, apart from one another, we will not be made perfect nor we will we receive the reward. We will all here receive the reward on the same day. We're all waiting for the same thing. 
our motivations and our goals and objectives are 100% in agreement. So let us lay aside every weight. Let us lay aside the sin that clings so closely and let us run together the race that is set before us. Let's pray. Father, we do not take lightly the circumstances and the difficulties that you have laid before many in this room. Father, it can be heartless to call our brothers and sisters' struggles light and momentary. But Father, we pray that you would enable us to Encourage one another with the hope to which you have called us and the riches of the glorious inheritance that await us and the promise of Jesus' certain return in which we will be perfected. And so, Father, in light of those circumstances, in light of those rewards, in light of the joy that is set before us, we can look with faith on the circumstances that you have us in and confidently call them light and momentary. Father, we thank you that we have a great high priest that is interceding for us even now. We ask, Lord Jesus, that you would remove the doubt from our mind or the discouragement or the the voices inside of us that quickly whisper, it's not worth it. Just don't even pursue it. Just don't even make the effort. Father, forgive us for our doubt, forgive us for our unbelief, but we thank you that we have been perfected and that our righteousness is in Christ. And so Lord, thank you that you are disciplining us as sons and daughters. Give us encouragement, lift our drooping hands and strengthen our weak knees. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.